Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, when we oppose a politician on an issue, we don't generally dismiss everything they stand for or their reason for taking that position. That's politics. We often disagree about issues and ideally work toward common ground. But what if politicians are deliberately misinforming or gaslighting us? These are folks who told outright lies, knew that they were not truthful, and set about trying to convince the American public on a daily basis that these were not correct, that these were not true about a war, about the intentions or the patriotism, or about the reality of their own uh, deception. These folks, again, in my definition of kind of what gaslighting looks like, is a dismissal for, a disinterest in, and a disregard for truth. And so they tell what are called, I would call, omnipresent untruths. Donald Trump falls into this category. That's University of Washington professor David Domke. He met with his fellow professor Christopher Sebastian Parker and Wellspring Family Services Vice President Keith Myers to discuss the question, is President Trump gaslighting us? They spoke at Town Hall Seattle on February 27th. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Ware Harmon introduces the discussion. It's a sincere pleasure to welcome you to tonight's uh, program on gaslighting in American politics. Okay, no, I, let me take that back. It is not a pleasure to have to welcome you to a program that's about this, is it? But we're glad you made it through this inclements, rain and snow and sleet of night or whatever and all that stuff. Thanks for being with us tonight. This program uh, will feature Christopher Sebastian Parker, David Domke, and Keith Myers. It's part of our civic series here brought to you with support from Boeing the True Brown Foundation and the Real Networks Foundation with our partners at KUOW. Another important silent partner tonight is Wellspring Family Services. Our, their new vice president of communications is our former, uh, we have no vice presidents, our former communications director. And uh, when we were having an informal conversation about uh, gaslight, the gaslighting phenomenon right now, uh, he said, you know, what if we got a clinical person from Wellspring together with some rock stars from the UW to talk about this thing? And that's how tonight's program was born. So thank you, Wellspring. Keith Myers is the Vice President for Clinical and Training Services at Wellspring Family Services. He's been, been with Wellspring for 30 years and is responsible for, almost 30 actually, and is responsible for approximately 65 staff in four branches offering a full range of individual, couples, and family counseling services. He's been central in developing the agency's new focus on infant mental health and is also an associate professor at the University of Washington uh, in uh, the School of Social Work. After a career as a journalist for papers including the Orange County Register and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, David Domke is now, and has been for a while, I suppose I should know more specifically than a while, but at any rate, uh, he's been a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Washington. He is currently the department's chair. In 2002, he received the University of Washington's Distinguished Teaching Award, the university's highest honor in teaching. In 2006, he was named Washington State Professor of the Year by the Council for Advancement and Supportive Education and the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. He is the author of two books, 2004's God Willing and 2010's The God Strategy, How Religion Became a Weapon in America. Christopher Sebastian Parker is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the UW. Uh, his first book, Fighting for Democracy, Black Veterans and the Struggle Against White Supremacy in the Post-War South, was the winner of the American Political Science Association's Ralph J. Bunch Award. 
His second book, Change They Can't Believe In, The Tea Party and Reactionary Politics in America, explores the beliefs, attitudes, and behavior of the Tea Party, and was published in 2013, also winning the American Political Science Association's award for the best book on race, ethnicity, and politics for that year. He's currently at work, he wants you to know, on two, count them, two books, as you might expect, about the current occupant of the Oval Office, one with Matt Barreto, the working party being from Tea Party to Trump, drawing just a laser line, uh, and then the latest book that he's writing, uh, Alone, uh, he didn't tell me much about what it's about, but we might be able to deduce it's called White Fright. So we were proud to host Chris uh, in 2013 for Change They Can't Believe In, as we have been proud to host him and Professor Domke numerous times over my 12 years in this job, both together and independently as speakers. And Keith Myers joins that august club, I guess, here for the first time tonight. Please join me in welcoming, I think it's going to happen this way, Christopher Sebastian Parker, and then he will be joined by Keith Myers and David Domke. Thanks. <laughs> Ooh-wee. What happened to those flying cars they promised us 30 years ago? All right, um, wow, it's a thrill and pleasure to be here once again uh, before you. I've been up here a couple times before with my colleague David Domke. It's my first time having a pleasure with, with Keith, so uh, can we give them a round of applause once again? I suppose I should ask for mine in advance as well, um, because I'm not sure how many, if you are a Trump supporter, a Trump fan, you are not gonna like me when this is all done. <laughs> um, and as I told my uh, colleagues that we discussed uh, during our little briefing backstage, you know, last night it seemed like the Academy Awards, you know, for the most part, tried to avoid politics. However, this is a manifestly political topic, and so I can't speak for my colleagues, but I'm all in head first on this, and I think they're going to follow suit. <laughs> Okay, um, so the name of the uh, presentation tonight, I took the liberty of entitling it, um, it was, I think this belongs, this phrase to, to make a proper attribution to Groucho Marx, are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? <laughs> Gaslighting in government in Trump's America. So um, without any further ado, we're already running late uh, given traffic, so I'm just gonna uh, dive right in if you don't mind. So the definition, to drive someone insane by making them doubt their perceptions or memories. Um, sounds kind of like marriage to me, but uh, what do I know? <laughs> you guys know I'm telling the truth. Don't even lie, all right? <laughs> all right, so here are some examples. Um, so we have the first one is the quote-unquote birther claim. So just to finish up, you see what's happening? The process is rigged. This whole election is being rigged. These lies spread by the media without witnesses, without backup or anything else are poisoning the minds of the electorate. No witnesses, no backup, no anything else. And I'm telling you, I have many top professionals. Don't talk about this, Donald. Nobody believes. I said maybe some do believe it. My high honor and distinct privilege to introduce to you the president-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump.
So let us move on. So the whole um, point to that is, is that Trump is making this actual, the rigged election claim rather, um, after he's already been elected. And welcome back to Hannity. We continue with Donald Trump. I, I, I did not want to bring this up because every person that interviews you goes right for the birth certificate issue, which by the way, you did win. I did. And he released it. They finally... Whatever it was he released. You know, some people don't know what it was that he released, and I'm not sure what he released, but... There's one line called place of birth. I'd like to see what he said. A lot of people want me to talk about place of birth. You saw this audience. Probably the biggest hand I got was when I mentioned place of birth. Many people do not think it was authentic. His mother was not in the hospital. There were many other things that came out. Okay, I thought the birth issue was established that you were satisfied. I wasn't satisfied. I never said I was satisfied. I never oh, you told were? you that I was satisfied. I, oh, I want to see. Excuse me. Who's satisfied? You Why? don't still question that he was born in the United States, do you? I have no idea. Even at this point? There are, well, I don't know. Was it a birth certificate? You tell me. You know, some people say that was not his birth certificate. I'm saying I don't know. Nobody knows. And you don't know either, Jonathan. You're a smart guy. You don't know either. Um, Going back a few years, do you regret questioning President Obama's citizenship? Why or why not? Not even a little bit. I don't regret it. Why would I regret it? But he is a citizen. He produced that long form, form birth cert. Well, a lot of people don't agree with you, and a lot of people feel it wasn't a proper certificate. You, almost single-handedly, were out there questioning President Obama's background. You said, how can you not show a birth certificate? Right. But Trump comes along and said, birth certificate. He gave a birth certificate. Whether or not that was a real certificate, because a lot of people question it, I certainly question it. Oh, and I, it turned I don't out know. to not be true. Well, so I don't know. You, according to you, it's not true. I don't know. You he know, released you, his birth certificate. You know, if, if you believe that, that's well, not Muslim. I, I really don't know. I mean, I, know. I, don't know. I don't know why he wouldn't release his records. Born his birth certificate. Who knows about Obama? Obama. His mother was a, a U.S. citizen who born knows? in Kansas. You know, can I, so can was, I tell you was he a natural born knows? citizen? Who knows? Who knows? Let's, who, who cares right now? Do you think your birther position has hurt you among African-Americans? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't even talk about it anymore, Bill, no, I because, know. you know, I just but don't bother talking about it. But it's there, it's on the record. You know. I don't know. I guess, I guess with maybe some, I don't know why, I, I, don't, I really don't know why, but I don't think very few people, you're the first one that's brought that up in a while. Okay. And I have one more. Uh, House Lights, I got one more. <laughs> <laughs> answer the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that but the point remains alternative facts alternative facts four of the five facts he uttered the hey, one Chuck, thing he why, got hey, right Chuck. was zeke miller four of the five facts he uttered were just not true look alternative facts are not facts they're falsehoods okay <laughs> okay best gaslight of all time i maintain that all right so um let's Get rolling here. So I have a list of questions that uh, um, I'd like to ask my colleagues. So this is how this is going to go. What, what does it mean to gaslight from a communications perspective? I'm going to direct that to my colleague uh, David Domke, after which I will follow up with 
a question, the same question from a clinical perspective, and then we'll go through three more additional questions, after which we'll open it up for Q&A. So first, uh, Professor Domke, what does it mean to gaslight from a communications perspective? Okay, uh, thanks, Chris. The, um, well, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, that's, a, that's a joke, all right? <laughs> so uh, I wanna draw a distinction to start between um, reasonable disagreement that people who have political viewpoints might have versus outright falsehoods, okay? I think in American political arena, we've had many presidents who strongly adhere to certain ideological perspectives and people who have a different worldview um, think that what they're having to say is, is just not accurate or not correct. And that may be so, but I wanna kind of put those folks into a category of what I might just call ideologically inclined presidents. Franklin D. Roosevelt, very ideological president. Okay, Ronald Reagan, very ideological president. Now these folks, if, if you in this room don't agree with them, you may say, you know what, they're not telling the truth. But that's not really the kind of people that, that I, I want to focus on here in terms of gaslighting with Trump. Those are folks that in the political arena are adhering, I think, by and large, to a, you know, a deep ideological perspective that they have. Who, in that space, don't live and breathe daily falsehoods. They speak the truths as they understand them. And they occasionally, like all politicians do, do offer falsehoods because there isn't a single political leader in office who doesn't have to tell untruths at times. They may not be outright lies, but they may be nonetheless statements that they just know are not going to be true. Like, we will remove our troops at a certain time. Or we are going to get everybody covered with health care. These kinds of things. They're, just, they're, they're more aspirational, and so they're not true. And the person who says them knows they're not true, but they're not really, again, what we would call outright falsehoods. So I want to put reasonable, nonetheless ideologically inclined political leaders into one box and say that you may disagree with these individuals, and there may be others who you totally agree with that others think are crazy and are just, that are just over the, beyond the pale ideologically. But they're not every day waking up and telling just things that are demonstrably false. Then there's this other category that I want to suggest is political leadership that has a dismissal for, a disregard for, and a disinterest in the truth. And these are folks who daily enact that. In our political presidential arenas, we can think of some of these folks, what are politicians, generally or po presidents in specific. A couple that I'll just mention would be Joseph McCarthy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon. These are folks who told outright lies, knew that they were not truthful, and set about trying to convince the American public on a daily basis that these were not correct, that these were not true, about a war, about the intentions or the patriotism or about the reality of their own uh, deception. These folks, again, in my definition of kind of what gaslighting looks like, is a dismissal for, a disinterest in, and a disregard for truth. And so they tell what are called, I would call, omnipresent untruths. Donald Trump falls into this category, in my view. Trump doesn't have near the political skills of those other individuals. But he's got a certain kind of skill set that is really well situated for today's culture, a culture that is media-centric, that is uh, dominated by an attention span that's very short, um, 
doesn't follow up on claims and ask for evidence. So in all kinds of ways, he's situated for today. Um, that distinction between those two, though, I think is really important to, to note because what Trump is doing as a politician is telling outright falsehoods that are just not true. And that's different than ideologically inclined worldview claims. Second thing I want to say is that history has shown us so far that when politicians act this way, they eventually lose. They eventually are brought to heel and are forced to come to terms with those untruths, legally, politically. We don't know yet if that'll happen with Donald Trump. But the key to making it happen in those three previous instances that I mentioned, McCarthy, Johnson, and Nixon, was an unfettered press. A press that was relentless, relentless in going after what they saw as the truth. I believe we're, and I hope, I hope this, and I want to believe this, that we're in the early stages of that right now with Donald Trump. We certainly didn't have that during the campaign. But I believe that we're in the early stages of that right now. So I think that it's important for that to make sure that we give, it takes a little, to recognize it, took, it takes a bit of time for that. We want it to happen now, but it takes time for other truth tellers to come forward and to make it known. So from a communications perspective, I want to just uh, kind of make this point then, that, that we, we're not talking about the occasional untruth. We're talking about a foundational set of untruths that are just an omnipresent uh, discourse and, and constancy, that the press is central to, to, to kind of checking this. And the last thing I want to say is that these other individuals that I've mentioned came to power with a history of untruths also. They didn't come to power and then suddenly become untruthful. They have a history of, of lies. McCarthy about his claims about military. Lyndon Johnson and his, uh, the ways in which he, he rigged an election in Texas. Claims about his own military endeavors. Richard Nixon about how he came to own a dog and much more. All right? So in the words of others, these folks are who they told us they were. They are. Donald Trump is that. And I'll just finish here and we can move on to the kind of clinical perspective. From a communications perspective, I don't know ultimately what the motives are. I only know, only know what the words are. Now, we can speculate about the motives, but I don't know what the motives are. I just know what the words are. And right now, these words are dangerous. They are very dangerous for our system. But there are other words, too. And there are words like tonight, and there are words that you engage in, and there are words like the press and the words they put forward. And ultimately, I believe that that speech will win the day. But the dawn is not here yet. Okay, uh, thank you, David. I would like to push back on you on one thing. Um, so you are a, a journalist uh, by trade. You were a journalist, so I'm glad you brought that perspective out. But one of the things I wanted to push back on, the principal thing I would like to push back on is you said Nixon, Johnson, and Joe McCarthy. One of these is not like the others. Right? And I'm going to give you a hint. His nickname was Tail Gunner. Tail, Tail Gunner Joe. So, so having said that, so one could say that, you know, with, you know, with Johnson 
I don't know if there's such a thing as in reality as a white lie, but relative to what was going on with Tailgunner Joe, you know, and his communists or his witch hunts, I mean, th those seem to be qualitatively different. I think, I'm not sure. I think we could have a, a next four or five hours of conversation about that. Lynn, there's probably people in this audience who would say that Lyndon Johnson's decisions as uh, president in terms of death, in terms of war, uh, claims were, were worse than what McCarthy engaged in, right? That people died on his watch and we escalated um, a war effort that didn't need to be escalated. So I, I'm not sure about that. But I will say that um, in all three instances, it was the press that brought them down. It was Murrow with McCarthy, it was Cronkite with Johnson, and it was the Post and others on Watergate. So I, I think that, that they all told lies, perhaps for different reasons and with different effects, but all of them were flat-out untruths used for their own political purposes. Okay. Roger that, David. Thank you. Keith, for the clinical perspective, please. I, I brought notes here. Um, so how many of you out there are therapists? Okay, wow. got a few. How many of you are psychoanalytically oriented therapists? A few, okay. So um, the, the, the term gaslighting, of course, comes from the uh, Patrick Hamilton's play Gaslight from 1939, and it was known in uh, the United States as Angel Street, and then later it was made into a movie uh, in 1944 called Gaslight with Charles Boyer and um, Joseph Cotton and, and Ingrid Bergman. And it takes place in the 19th century, um, where lights, uh, where the, the houses are lit with gas. And um, the victim's husband in the, in the movie and in the play manipulated the gaslight in a way that made his wife's complaint seem as if she, about the, the flickering gaslights, made it seem as though she was going insane. And the husband's aim was to have her committed uh, to a mental hospital so that he could gain the property for himself. Now, after that play came out, British psychoanalysts started using the term gaslight to mean to drive somebody crazy, to drive somebody psychotic. And that was kind of an early, narrow definition of it. It's been broadened over time to describe one person trying to make another person, um, uh, try, I'm sorry, to try to undermine the victim's belief system and replace it with another belief system. And so that's clinically what happens in a lot of situations. Now, a, a local psychoanalyst, Ted Dorpat, wrote, actually wrote a book on gaslighting. It was called um, let's see, it's called Gaslighting the Double Whammy, Interrogation and Other Methods of Covert Control in psycho, uh, Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis. And, and in that book, he, he identifies two defining characteristics of gaslighting. He says, one, the manipulation is one in which an individual attempts to exert control over the feelings, thoughts, or activities of another individual. And the second one is the practice is carried out covertly and is not expli explicitly, directly hostile, abusive, coercive, or intimidating. So um, this is so covert that the perpetrator may not even be aware that they're, that they're doing it. Um, but the, uh, it's used to disrupt another person's mental functioning, but not necessarily their behavior, although behavior could be included in the, in the gaslighting concept. Um, ultimately, he comes to a, a, a what I think is a really good definition, very similar to what Chris put up there earlier, is that it is an attempt to influence the judgment of a second individual by causing them to doubt the validity of their own judgment and perceptions. Um, he also, uh, Dorpat also goes on to talk about uh, gaslighting as being common and maybe even ubiquitous in all communications. Um, and it certainly happens, I think Chris alluded to this, it, it certainly happens in marriages. 
um, a lot. Um, now, the, the, the double whammy that, um, that Dorpat talks about in his book, he says it's the double whammy. He says, first, the victim is verbally attacked, insulted, or disparaged. And then after that, after the victim has protested this, the victimizer again verbally abuses the victim by discrediting and invalidating the judgments uh, made by the victim. So it goes something like this. You always do that wrong. You're such a loser. And then the other person would say, oh my God, that's really hurtful. I'm, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's terrible. And then the first person would say, oh, I'm just kidding. You know, can't you take a joke? You're being too overly, overly sensitive. And so what happens is that they're verbally attacked, and then they have a reaction to that, and then the reaction is discounted. And that, that second attack is really the one that, that does people in. That's the one that invalidates their feelings. It's the one that makes them feel like they're no good, like they're stupid, and, and, and stuff like that. So um, the other, this concept of gaslighting has kind of taken on other forms. It's sometimes called the double bind. Um, in the, uh, a long time ago, we used to call it the schizophrenogenic situation, so where you drive somebody crazy. Uh, you put them in a double bind situation where no matter what they do, it's the wrong thing. Um, I would also say that Dorpat's book on, on gaslighting is mostly, most of the book has to do, is devoted to un, the unconscious gaslighting technique, techniques used by therapists on their clients. I'll, I'll move on from there. Um, he also says it's used by totalitarian governments, fundamentalist religious groups, cults, encounter groups, and large group awareness training leaders. I don't think Dorpat, Dorpat had much use for Dor, uh, large group awareness training leaders. So this is where uh, the, the, I'll, I'll close by talking a little bit about the function of gaslighting. So clinically, when we think about gaslighting clinically, it's a form, it's a primitive form of projection. And we're all kind of familiar with projection. Projection is where we say, oh, that's not me, that's you. It's not my fault, it's your fault. And it's a favorite defense used by adolescents, and it drives the adults around them absolutely crazy. You know, it's not, I didn't flunk that. It, it wasn't my fault I flunked that test. It was the teacher's fault. You know, the teacher didn't teach me right, or they didn't write a good test, or whatever. And so, you know, that's kind of, that's basic projection. Um, what gaslighting is, is called projective identification. And it's an even more insidious kind of projection because it not only projects onto another person uh, the feelings that are inside the, inside the first person, but they're then treated in such a way that they begin to feel as though, uh, feel the same way that the person who's projecting things onto them is. So it goes something like this. Um, I feel stupid and like a loser. Um, I don't like to feel stupid and a loser. So I act in such a way to make you feel stupid um, by demeaning you or tricking you to the point where you question whether or not you really are stupid. And so that's kind of one of the most destructive parts of projective identification is that um, if, if you can get the other person to believe those projections, to begin to act like, like the, the stupid person that, you, that you're trying to get them to believe, that's an incredibly destructive kind of thing. Now, if the, if the uh, intended victim can, can uh, kind of pull away and say, no, I don't, that, I, I don't believe that, that's not what, uh, that, that's not what I think is true, then, then you can uh, kind of ward off a lot of that projective identification. Um, what, I'll, I'll close this part of it by saying that we could assume that someone who uses gaslighting to make people feel stupid 
or like a loser, have been made to feel that way themselves by the important people in their lives. Thank you, Keith. Um, give him a hand, please. You gave David a hand. Please give Keith a hand. Um, and, you know, like I did with David, I like to um, follow up with a couple questions. The first of which is, are there certain predispositive factors um, when it comes to gaslighting? That is to say, are there certain people that are predisposed to gaslighting and are there to be on the receiving end mm -hmm. of gaslighting and, and whether or not it takes? And then are there certain personality types or individuals that are more likely to attempt to gaslight? Um, yeah, so, so to answer the first question, um, let, me, let me kind of do, uh, let me answer it by, by telling a brief story if I can, if that's all right. I'll, I'll make it brief. Um, so, so let me tell you a story. I'm, you know, when, during the introduction, you heard that I was a, you know, I've been in this business for almost 40 years. I've been a clinical director for 30 years. Um, one of my areas of expertise is suicide. Um, suicide and, and so early on in the 80s, I wrote, I co-authored a book on suicide. And then later on, uh, when a new uh, state law was passed in 2014 that required all mental health professionals to have six hours of training in suicide um, assessment, inter intervention, and treatment, um, I began to do a bunch of suicide workshops. So we've done about, my training partner and I have done about 30 workshops. We've trained about 3,500 people over the course of the last three years. So in the process of doing that, I've learned a lot not only about suicide, but about uh, about homicide as well, because they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And so um, when, we, when we start to uh, think about the, the facts of suicide, so let me, uh, let me tell you just a couple of things about suicide and homicide and the relationship between them. And, and what I'm about to tell you is stuff that you'll probably already know. Uh, it's stuff that you, you probably you may not have the exact numbers to put on them, but you'll have a general sense as to what I'm, what I'm about to say to you. So what I, what I would say is that over the last 15 years, the suicide rate has increased um, uh, considerably, and now it's the highest rate that it's ever been in this country's history. Um, about, uh, despite that, though, uh, the murder rate in the United States is twice the suicide rate. Um, and three-quarters of all deaths by gun in Washington State are murder. Um, men die by suicide less often than women, and the adolescent suicide rate is higher than the adult rate, and because of years of oppression and racism and slavery, the African-American suicide rate is about five times that of the white, non-Hispanic white rate. So does that, as I talk about that, does that seem, does that sound reasonable? Does that sound right? I was actually going to go to the race card after this. That's but, okay. Yeah, All right. You. Okay. So does that, that kind of seem, I mean, does that, that set right? Does that sound about right for everybody? Okay. Well, everything I just told you is not only a lie. <laughs> it's basically the opposite of the truth. So... You know, what I'm saying is that, so let's, let's kind of quickly deconstruct what, what happens. Those of you who actually believe me, um, you know, what, what let's deconstruct this. So Wait, what, you're, you're gaslighting us right now. I am. I am. I'm gaslighting you right now. Um, and, and part of my point is that we're all susceptible to gaslighting. Nobody is immune to gaslighting. 
So what I did was I said, let me tell you a story. And when I say tell and story in the same sentence, that makes me automatically more credible, more empathetic, and you, and you more friendly to me. You'd like me more when I say I'm going to tell you a story because we kind of know what to do with that. And then I established myself as an expert in the field. And then I said to you, um, you know, you all will know this. This will all sound very obvious to you. Um, and, and I played to this idea that we all have that we have a pretty good sense of what's around us and we have a pretty good sense of the world. And so the, uh, the suicide rate in the United States has increased um, over the last 15 years, but it's still lower than it was in 1950, 1960, 1970, and 1980. Um, the uh, gun deaths in Washington State, the, the, actually the murder rate is half the suicide rate. It's half, not twice. It's half the suicide rate. The murder rate is less. Three quarters of all gun deaths in Washington state are suicide, not homicide. The adolescent suicide rate is lower than the adult rate. And the white, non-Hispanic white suicide rate is five times the African-American suicide rate. So everything was basically the opposite of what I said. And so when I began to talk, you all began, and, and if you found me, you know, kind of sympathetic and you liked me and, and you found that I was friendly and, you know, kind of an expert on things, you began to think of, of uh, stories that confirmed what I was telling you. Maybe you searched your memory and you hear a lot more about um, murders than you do suicides. And there's a reason for that, because ethically, ethical uh, reporting says you don't report the details of suicide. The because of fear of contagion effect. And you may have heard of somebody who committed suicide, who died by suicide, um, and probably the last person you heard about maybe was Robin Williams, maybe? But you heard a lot about murders, right? You hear about murder all the time. So as you go searching your memory, you, hear, you, 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 you access these things that confirm what I have to say. And so that happens all the time. So when I, I don't know how many tweeters there are in here, but when you get a fact tweeted to you and you retweet that without thinking about it, this is what happens. You say, oh, that sounds right. That sounds like a fact. That sounds reasonable. And, we, and then we repeat that as the fact. And when in fact, that's not what happens. There's a lot of reasons for this. Um, and I'll shut up here in a minute, I promise. Um, but but th there's a lot of reasons for this. And part of the problem is that we, were, we have basically been designed by evolution to accept alternative facts, to not think through things very carefully. We have this system inside of us that, that's really good at keeping us alive, at survival, and it's got probably hundreds of millions of years of evolution behind it. And then we have this kind of frontal lobe thing that has been evolving for a couple of hundred thousand years. And so you've got a million years of this kind of survival thing, and you've got a couple hundred thousand years of this executive functioning thing, and the, and the, the survival thing is always going to win. Um, how many of you are familiar with um, uh, Daniel Kahneman's work on, yes, so this is system one and system two. Um, Kahneman uh, wrote a book, uh, he's written a lot of stuff, but it's how people make decisions. You familiar with Kahneman? Yeah, Thinking Fast and Slow. Great book. If you haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow, read it. It's really, it's really great, but it explains a lot of this. But it says, basically says that we have this other system that we can use, but it's kind of lazy. And it kind of gives, it gives us the, um, it, it, it gives seeds power to system one, which collects all these facts and all this information and does it really quickly and does it out of our awareness. Basically what he says is system, 
uh, system one is who you are and system two is who you think you are. Um, so we're all, all of, all of us are vulnerable to, um, uh, to, to gaslighting, all of us are vulnerable to, uh, to alternative facts, and yes, there are some par personalities that are more uh, likely to, to gaslight, but they're people who have been gaslit themselves, if that's a word. Uh, they're people who have been abused, uh, they're people who have been um, ignored and abused and demeaned, and then they have to get that out and do that and, and, and create that in somebody else so that they feel better. That's so, the long answer, sorry. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you for the dissertation, Keith. So, <laughs> so um, let's, let's swing back a little bit to this side. Um, but I did have a question, however, because um, it suggests that from what you said, and um, because I gotta be honest with you, uh, before uh, being approached uh, about the gaslighting phenomena, um, David and I both admitted to ourselves via text, do you know what it means to, you know what gaslighting means? I'm like, man, I just found out a couple of days ago, man, so, because so, I had heard it thrown around so often. But let me, so I kind of want to, we can revisit this in Q&A if you guys wish, but I kind of want to throw it open to my colleagues right now. Can gaslighting occur at a group level? And, and I ask this question because often racism is denied. Like somebody will tell me racism doesn't exist. I'm like, man, how the fuck are you gonna tell me racism does not exist? I live this every day. Pardon the French, but whatever, right? It's like, I live this every day. So how are you gonna tell me racism doesn't exist? Same thing when it comes to sexism, right? You have men that'll tell women or believe that sexism does not exist, right? So I guess I wanna throw it open to my colleagues. It's like, can this occur at the group level? And it seems to me, moreover, there is this presumption of, or maybe this activation of power. It seems like there's a power dynamic, if you will, that is associated with gaslighting. And so I'm just gonna throw this open you know, to, you know, to my two colleagues here. What do you guys think about that? Do you find any validity in either one of those claims? When you say, it happen, does it happen at the group level? Let me just make sure I'm asking. You mean, can a speaker or a group of speakers convince a certain group of people of a, of, the, of a certain set of alternative facts. Is that what you mean? Uh, yes, yes, something, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would seem like that's what happens in politics. It, so maybe we need political gaslighting as opposed to interpersonal uh, relational gaslighting, right? That political gaslighting is the, the skill set, the ability to put forward through repetition, through uh, an unconscionability about the falsehoods one's telling um, in such a way that you're able to convince, that you, that you uh, believe that you can, and then you are able to convince a significant subgroup of the American electorate of those alternative facts that you're claiming. So that the claim that, of course, that not only is this president a bad president, uh, not the former president, President Obama, not only is he supposedly a bad president, but that he's not an American citizen, that he's a Muslim. Right? And so who believes that? Well, you're targeting that to certain groups of people. You don't expect everybody to buy that. You are thinking that there will be a certain subset of group of people, and th that will be particularly white working class men. That's a reality. And it is those folks of people that I think are the most susceptible politically in this moment of a diversifying the United States, of a globalizing economic space, of, an, 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 of a media system that doesn't look like them except on certain cable channels, that are most susceptible to this at this time politically. 
Okay, so I need to push back on you on that for a sec, David. So for, um, just to, and this is my part of my ongoing research. It is a fact that you know Trump won 48% of white college-educated voters. First of all, second of all, like with the Tea Party work, you had a lot of people who were fairly well-educated and doing really well who uh, supported the Tea Party. Um, and then if we think about the proportion of working-class whites, and this is kind of this is this has been sticking in my craw ever since this this stuff came out, is that they want to everyone wants to attribute progressives included you know, Trump's victory to working class whites. That's just not true. Working class whites only constitute 36% of the electorate. And Trump only won two thirds of that. So, so I guess, so one of the things I wanna bring out here, and thank you for helping me out with this, is that this is not about working class whites. The reason why this is so important is because it's going to lead to faulty policy prescriptions in adjusting the economy to accommodate working class whites. These jobs are not coming back. The fact of the matter is you had a lot of white educated people who supported Trump, right? That's just, true. now whether or not they're more susceptible to gaslighting, I'll defer to you on that. But I know for a fact when we look at the exit polling and when we look at what's going on theoretically, that it's, it's not mainly working class whites. They, they're a part of it, but that presumes that, you know, that well-educated, or white folks who have not been left behind by globalization, that they didn't support Trump in enough numbers to get him over the top. And that's just simply not true. Yeah, I, did, I didn't say that. What I said <laughs> is that a certain body of people are more susceptible to it in our political system than others. And that those body of people were the folks that he was speaking to. That others came along and supported him, I think is a different situation, okay? I think though that he built his base as every politician needs to, with a certain body of people. And his base was ready for his message and these alternative facts that he presented, and continues to be. You look at the NBC Wall Street Journal poll over the weekend, his approval rating among white working class men is 64 to 28. Among, that's non-college educated. That's how it's defined. Non-college educated white men. Among college educated white men, it's uh, exactly the opposite, 28 to 64. Exactly the opposite. So his base is those folks. That's not the only people who voted for him, but it is his base politically. And so when he set out to build a base, what did he go with? He went on a racist message, the birther message. That's what brought him into the political arena. That was not a message tailored to the masses. That was tailored to a certain body of people. Okay, so at the, at the very end of this, I have a data analysis that I'm gonna show everybody. Um, and this is uh, from the Washington poll. And then, you know, and we can, you know, we can sort this out then. I'm not gainsaying what David's saying, but I think there's part of that that's true. But um, I'm saying when you do a more comprehensive data analysis, the whole class thing completely falls out. So, um, <laughs> I love this guy. We, we go after each other like this all the time. Um, so Keith, um, so, uh, so can you comment on what David said? Not necessarily about you know, well, you can comment on whatever you want to comment on. <laughs> but I, but I, but what I'm more interested in, and I hopefully you guys are as well, is whether or not this, this phenomenon of gaslighting can be extended to the group level. That is to say, is it possible for, you know, white, white folks to gaslight people of color and men to gaslight women? Or does it, can it work in the opposite direction? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think it can work at the, at, the, um, at the group level. I think it's more effective at the individual level. I think it's more effective when you have a relationship, a direct relationship. You know, I, I'm not sure that, that Trump has um, persuaded anybody who didn't already agree with him. Um, and, and most of his, um, his gaslighting is, I, I, we were talking about this, Dave and I were talking about this before, um, you know, we're not here tonight because Trump is a great gaslighter. We're here because he's an obvious gaslighter, and it pisses us off um, because, it's, because it's so obvious. Um, but it's not particularly good, and it's not particularly effective. I think, there are, I think a lot of the, you know, the, the, the people that David was talking about earlier um, were a lot better at it. So, yes, I think gaslighting can happen, but I think it's much more effective when you have an individual or personal relationship with somebody. It's much easier to, 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 to dominate and to get in and, and do something like that. Chris, can I just, uh, your question, yeah. can it happen at the group, group level, men, or men to women, white to African Americans? It seems to me that gaslighting inherent in the political system involves power. Okay, it involves power. So certainly someone who's an African-American uh, person in a society can gaslight to white Americans, but it's unlikely that they have the power to, to operate upon that in the same way as, the, as a white person does, right? And so gaslighting to me is, gains the, the sinister aspects politically when it's coupled with power, right? No, that's, yeah. And that's, and that's yeah. what we see in domestic violence situations. Yeah, yeah. You see that kind of power and control. I mean, whether domestic violence isn't just hitting people, it's really a power and control kind of thing. And there's a lot of gaslighting that goes on in a domestic violence situation. And so, yeah, it, it's where one person has more power than another, and in many cases, physical. Okay, so we got the light signal. Um, I don't know what that means. If we have five minutes left of Q&A, 10 minutes, can somebody, like, throw up a card or something like that back there. So, so what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to skip to, okay, so I'm going to skip to the last question. If you I guys think, no, I think that was a photo. Oh, that was a photo? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Kellyanne right. Conway was back here, right? <laughs> Kellyanne was back. So I do, I do fear, however, that we're running short on time. So if you guys don't mind, can we skip to the last question and just ask, does sure. the present case of gaslighting pose a threat to American democracy? So... We're gonna, let's swing it back over here to David. Does it pose a threat to America? This is our last question then before Q&A, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Does it pose a threat to American democracy? Absolutely. Does it pose an existential threat? I believe it does. Does it pose a never seen before threat to American democracy? No, not in my view. We have seen great threats to this country's uh, uh, standing. You can go all the way back to the, the, the as far back as you wanna go. There are people that have done terrible things that have posed existential threats to this democracy. What I do think makes this moment different, though, is that we have an ability as a public to silo ourselves from that press that I spoke about at the beginning so that we do not encounter news in the same way that we used to. We get to select into news cycles. So that's why I don't know if the press is persistence at this time will have the same outcome as it had before because of that situation. So does it pose a threat? Yes. Existential? Yes. Is it greater than ever before? Probably not. But I don't know, and so I'm sufficiently concerned about it that, um, that I'm, I'm not prepared to spend the rest of my career as an academic. Can you 
elaborate? Would yeah. you elaborate on that, please? So, you know, I've made a decision that I'm leaving the university in a couple of years to, to engage in the public arena, in the political space, in a way that I think is more hands-on. I, I think it's a privileged opportunity to be at a university. And so... But, you know, my wife is like, what? And so... But the reality is, 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 is it's, it's, it's not just that, it's that I do believe that this moment is significant enough. It is, right? And, you know, I did, a, this, I, this came after the decision, I mean, I made, but I was doing a talk about a month ago, and I, I was finishing the talk, and I said, look, there are people in this room who have fought and died for this, I mean, not who didn't die, but know people who died for this country. There are others of you that, that fought for this country, and I'll be damned if this country's going down on my watch. Right? And so the reality is that it, it, it's so much bigger than this little town hall moment. It's about the, the globe. So is it, yes, is it going to be, is it going to not end our, 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 our experiment democracy? I don't know. I hope not, but I don't know. And so that's why we're here. Yeah. Thank you, David. Please give him a hand, please. <laughs> Keith? Yeah. I, I think it does pose a threat. Um, I think, though, and that, that gaslighting has always gone on, it will always go on, and, the, but, and, and there may be not a whole lot we can do about it, but what we can do is pay attention to ourselves. Um, we, we can't control what other people do, but we can control what we do. And so what we have to do is we have to slow down, we have to think, we have to think things through. And, and we probably have to do one of the hardest things that we can possibly do. I think um, it's been my experience, and the longer I stay in this business, the more I understand it this way, that nothing good happens, relatively little happens that's good outside of the context of a relationship. And so you have to have a relationship with someone in order to be able to persuade them. You're not going to be able to persuade somebody um, by yelling at them. You're not going to be able to persuade somebody by throwing rocks at them. Um, what you have to do is one of the hardest things to, to, to do is to, to befriend a Trump supporter um, and, and make them your friend and listen first. And, and then if we can listen first, then we can speak but we have to listen first. So in order to be able to save the institutions um, that are so precious to us, and particularly the press, I'm, I'm really worried about the attacks on the press. I think that's one of the, one of the things that uh, is most alarming about what Trump's been doing so far. We have to be able to step back and we have to be able to think this stuff through and we have to be able to support a free press. But we, in order to do that, we have to have a relationship. We have to go outside of our circle. We have to be able to um, uh, to, to make relationships with other people and to then persuade them once, once we're inside the relationship, not outside the relationship. Okay, thank you, Keith. Give him a hand, please. <laughs> so briefly, I'm going to exercise my prerogative as a moderator. I didn't really get a chance to say too much because of my esteemed colleagues are so on point with their comments, and I thank you for that. So if you guys don't mind, I'm just gonna spend a minute or two. Yeah. That's so all my own thoughts. So the first thing I want to do is bring up this uh, promised data analysis. This is based on a Washington poll that we conduct at the University of Washington every um, election cycle. Um, so people think that since we're in Washington, we're in a bubble. We're really not. So 30% of Washington voters cast a ballot for Trump. So if we disaggregate this by region, um, Puget Sound, 
uh, 21%, Eastern Washington, 44%, and other regions, North and South, rather, um, 35%. So why vote for Trump? Conventional wisdom is about economic anxiety. That is working class right, whites, right? Not true. Class makes no difference when it comes to support for Trump when we put this in what is called a multivariate setting um, when we're controlling or accounting for other alternative, <laughs> alternative explanations. <laughs> um, so what does account for voting for Trump? Racism, feelings towards Obama, and support for the Tea Party matter. If we think about this in probabilistic terms, if one is racist and increases the probability that one voted for Trump by 25%, if one um, hates Obama, it increased the probability of voting for Trump by 36%, and if one uh, was a Tea Party supporter, it increased the probability of voting for Trump by 7%. So um, having said that, um, working on this, these other two books, I have a ton more data. There's no way I can trot that out in this or five more town hall presentations, assuming that I'll ever be invited back. <laughs> so um, I'll close on this, is that I do, like my colleagues, believe this is going to be, this is, Trump poses an existential threat to democracy, to American democracy. We see similar things happening in Europe, of course. You know, in France, you know, we see the Front National, um, you know, in Germany, we see alternative for Deutschland. Um, you know, we see in the Netherlands, the Freedom Party. These things are happening all over every place. And you know what the one common denominator is? Perceived rapid social change. That's what it is. So let me finish and, and close by saying like this. One of the reasons why reactionaries are so successful is because they traffic in fear, anger, and anxiety. Progressives typically don't go there. And the reason why they're so successful is because they saw Obama, just like they see these changes overseas, as posing existential threats to their respective nations. Not necessarily countries, but nations. So what progressives have to do, progressives have to see Trump and his team as an existential threat to democracy. That's the only way we're really gonna gain any progress or make any traction in this thing. My concern is that the left is not going to be able to sustain the anger and anxiety and fear that we see right now. That is, I, so you guys think about this yourselves. So if we want to actually for us take, our, I hate to say this, take our country back or make America great again, that progressives have to stand up and be counted and see Trump as an existential threat as well. With that, I'll open it up for Q&A, thank you. We ask that you come up to the microphones on either side of the stage and please keep your question in the form of a question. Thank you. Okay, so um, all throughout Trump was, and the Republican Party, um, kind of Fox Media type things were labeling the Affordable Care Act as Obamacare and it's evil and whatnot. And as far as putting a group focus on that, saying it's evil, I think they were kind of gaslighting that. Recent comment as of today is, who knew um, affordable, I mean, insurance can be such a hard problem. So my question is, is that sudden switch from it's evil to, oh, this is, a hard thing, who knew, 
when it, that's been the whole issue beforehand. Is that actual gaslighting, or is that kind of a kung fu, jujitsu type of thing <laughs> outside of gaslighting? Because it's so obvious. I'll say one quick word on that. So on the Affordable Care Act, that, that plan of action, that strategy was actually um, promulgated by the Heritage Foundation in 1996. It only became a problem when Obama adopted it. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I'll throw the rest open to my colleagues. You know, in my view, the, the critique of the Affordable Care Act became a, a political weapon, right, against this president. Chris's point he's making there is that it became a political weapon against a, a man who was African-American as our president, right? And so at that, so in my view, it was, it, it, it moved from a political disagreement that reasonable people can have based upon ideology to an attempt to delegitimize, to disregard truth claims. And that, that, was, the, that was the framework upon which everybody in the Republican Party has operated for the last eight years. Since, the, since this man became president, right? So it operated there. What came along is that the outwardly, explicitly racist claims about him being Muslim, him not being an American citizen, was built upon that in a foundational way. And so Trump now can move back and forth seamlessly between those things, I think, in a way that allows him to have the persona that he gains all of the seeming just political disagreements around Obamacare that doesn't seem to be a racist thing, but he, because he's got this other racist history that allows him to operate very carefully, comfortably there. Um, so to me, it is, it is absolutely a set of falsehoods at this point, bound in, I believe, in a racial worldview that was, that was there at the beginning. Had this been put forward by George W. Bush, by Mitt Romney as it was, yeah. Yeah. right? The claims that would have been made about it would have been different claims. So that was not based in an ideological disagreement. It was based in a worldview that it said falsehoods must rule. So to me, this is a gaslighting situation, right? And now, but I do believe facts ultimately do win the day. They have won the day. And I think the Republicans are now finding out that facts are stubborn things around health care. They really are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would just add that, it, you know, it was clearly a political strategy. Um, that included a number of rhetorical methods, including gaslighting, yes. Thank you. There's a certain level of euphemizing that seems to me to be going on around this political gaslighting. And it has to do with, in particular, the, the words that are used to describe the, um, the, the, statement, the false statements that are made. Um, we saw on the clip that Conway advanced this ridiculous term, alternative facts, which was quickly derided, but then replaced by that interviewer with words that have been used a lot tonight, falsehood and untruth. Those to me are, are very watered down and, and, and distracting versions of the word that came to my mind when David was describing his definition of political gaslighting, which screamed to me through almost the entire time he was talking as lying. Can, can you talk a little bit about where people's impetus comes from to water down their, the, the words they use to, to describe this lying and the effect it has on the conversation that, and, and the, uh, our, our efforts to address this behavior? So let me just uh, throw out one observation. So when it was happening um, on the left and people on Fox were addressing this, they would straight out call Obama a lie, right? 
or anybody on the left. But it's you, you, lie, you lie. Exactly. Like, what's my man, the uh, South Carolina senator? Yeah. What's my Carl Obama, a liar at the State of the Union. Thank you for reminding me, David. Um, and so, yeah, but people on the left, they're nice. You know, they want to be politically correct. That stuff is not, no longer going to, to work. You guys have to get pissed off, right? You guys got to start calling a lie a lie. You got to start calling bullshit on these people. So, and it's, but the fact is that progressive, we want to think about policy. We want concern, to be concerned with process and fairness. No, no. We can't take, we cannot afford to take prisoners anybody we, anymore. We have to kill everybody. Seriously. Anybody else want to comment on this before I get myself in too much trouble? Chris, is a, you're a veteran, man. Let's just get this straight. I mean, like a real veteran, right? Yeah, he's a military vet. Let's give him up. Let's give it up to Chris for that right now. Yeah. 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 Um, I wanted to say something about this. So the, uh, you, was it Key and Peele who had the skits with the angry Obama, right? Like, we need to be the angry Obama, right? Not the, not the calm, reasoned. And I, I'm going to be doing a lecture series at UW in April. Um, there's still a few tickets left if you're interested in brown paper tickets. Um, it's around, I'm just, just mentioning it. It's, uh, but it's around news and information in the 21st century in the political system. So if you're interested, you can find it. Look it up, David Domkey, brown paper tickets. Um, but here's, the, here's what I want to say about this is that... Um, the, the reality of, of characterize that one of, and I have so much respect for this man as former president, Barack Obama, right? But one of the mistakes I think that he made is that that genteel, oh, that incredible confidence that people would reasonably begin to listen to him allowed this to, to emerge, right? It allowed it to emerge in such tremendous visceral. Now, I know that as a man, he could never be the angry black man. I know that. I know that. I know that. I, I understand entirely, but where were the rest of us? Where were the rest of us who ha were supposed to have his back, right? Absolutely. And so that's what happened over eight years. The man was so incredible, and we're like, we, he's got this. Well, no, he had it, but then, you know what? Look at what came out of it, Trump, right? So I won't quite say we need to kill everybody, but I think that we need to be, we need, we need to be all in, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure I have anything to add to that. I think I'll take the next question. Uh, let, me, let me just uh, add to what uh, David just said. So what I think happened is that Obama was a course correction to Bush, just like Trump is a course correction to Obama. Like these people want their country back from not only him, but from the rest of the folks that don't think like them. Okay, next question. We, where are we? We're over here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Myers, Keith, if you prefer. Um, uh, my question is specifically to you. I noticed something uh, that happened in my own mind when you were playing out your gaslighting experiment on us. Uh -huh. And that was that a couple of the things that you said didn't strike me as quite right. When the, the claim that you made about um, specifically, it was actually a couple of things, but the one that stuck out the most was the claim that the murder rate was twice the suicide rate. But because there seemed, I didn't hear any protestation from my group, the people here, and also in combination with your status as an expert, it tended to, I, I just, it just slipped away. 
I just kind of let it go, even though there was a little bit of a niggling there. I didn't stand up. I didn't say, uh, hold on a second. That doesn't seem quite right. And I'm wondering how much, I guess in the form of a question, how, <laughs> how much that tendency, and I don't know if anybody else experienced that here, how much that tendency plays into this political gaslighting or group gaslighting is sort of that tendency to, well, I don't see anybody else <laughs> protesting, so maybe I'll just sit down and shut up. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I think that that is a phenomenon. I mean, it, it, we, we see that in a lot of different situations. It's, you know, in, and maybe this goes to the group question, too. You know, when it, it's like when you see, what was that case where the woman was being uh, beat up and murdered on the street in New York and nobody said anything? Um, you know, it, it's a little bit like that. And, and you know, you, if, if you, see, you know, it's kind of like if you see something, say something. If you, if you think something, say something. Or at least check out your facts. And, and we, you're, you're right, there is this kind of, well, nobody else said anything, so I must be wrong. And you begin to question, because I was gaslighting you. I was trying to gaslight you to get you to believe something that wasn't true. I was trying to replace your belief system that the murder rate is twice the suicide, that the suicide rate is twice the murder rate. Um, and, and, you know, you sort of, you, you need to, to slow down and think and, and say something when you, do, when, when you hear something like that. You need to question it. Yes, it is a common human phenomena to say, oh, well, I must be wrong. And yeah, then you go out and you start to search for facts that support the opposite side. And that's really what we have to avoid doing. I don't know if that answered your question, but, but yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you for thank you for bringing that up because I'm sure that there, I, I saw a lot of other heads nodding here, um, and 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 I was I was hoping I was actually hoping that someone would stand up and say bullshit um, <laughs> because that would that would be really good if you would. But. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, sure. We only have time for one more question, unfortunately. One more question. Can we, can we do it this way? Can we, instead of just asking one more question, can we get the remaining people, the balance of the people at the mics, and just come up here and just rapid fire the questions, and we'll just try to wrap it up in a nice bow, please, if you will? Oh, okay, I'm worried about the uh, rallies that Trump is having again, um, where he gets people very emotional. It's almost like a religious revival, and it's very us versus them. And uh, just wondering if we could have a singing revolution to revive our emotions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Over here. David, a couple months ago at Leadership Tomorrow, you said you were going to quit the U and go out and, and work on three things. You were going to work on uh, fair and free elections. You were going to work on getting women elected the office. And you were going to work on talking to the other side. I wanted to hear an example of how you tell them the other side. You're being lied to and how that conversation would go. Okay, um, back over here to our left on the stage. Okay, I applaud uh, the attempt to try to describe a model about what's going on. But I wonder if perhaps you might consider another model, that being Hannah Arendt's Sandstorm. Okay, thank you. Okay, la um, last two on our right. I was surprised not to hear about Bannon or Russia and wondering what your thoughts are on the influencers of Gaslight. Okay, thank you. And the last question, Hi. please, ma'am. Yeah, I, um, my alternative model is the emperor has no clothes <laughs> because I feel like there are mental health professionals, there are politicians, there are uh, press saying um, Trump is mentally unstable. And I feel that that's true, especially since his press conference. 
but nothing's happening. It, it's like literally that old, the emperor has no clothes. Nobody's standing up to say, There's, he has nothing on. He's bonkers. So what can we do about that? What can we do about that? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank so, um, so uh, to, just so let's work backwards. I'll take that one, and then you guys can sort out the rest. David, there was one direct, directly of you. I'm going to take that one and the one about talking to other people. On that one, um, the only way, so using um, the, the constitutional route to get him out beyond impeachment, because there are not enough votes right now in the House to get him out via impeachment, it'll take half of the House, and it will take two-thirds of the Senate. Not happening. On the 25th Amendment, the fourth clause, that's about fitness of the president. It's going to take half of his cabinet, the vice president, and it's going to take two-thirds of the Senate and two-thirds of the House. High bars. On the talking to the other side thing, you guys, forget about that shit. Not going to work, right? <laughs> not going to work. Not for those 20 to 25 percent of, of white folks who support. It's not going to work. Those people aren't changing. We have to get the conservatives and Republicans that are in the middle. Those are true patriots. They want to do the right thing, right? Those are the people to whom we need to reach out. Those hardcore Trump supporters, forget about it. <laughs> so the, uh, the gentleman referenced the talk I gave. Uh, there's been three things that I've been talking to groups about that we can all make a difference around. One is advocacy for voting rights. Voting rights, We're, we need to be marching for voting rights, okay? It's, it is harder to vote in the United States at any point in time in American history since 1965, all right? So the reality is that, that you look at turnout in Wisconsin and other states, well, actually that turnout wasn't just because people might not have been fired off about Hillary Clinton, it's because they couldn't vote, all right? So the reality is voting rights matters. A second thing is we need to, we need to work very hard to, to cultivate a space to create a space in which female political leadership has to stop climbing so many sexist mountains, okay? We can't understand that Hillary Clinton's loss without deeply found, foundationalizing it upon sexism, and we have talked not much about it, but that's a core part of Trump's, Trump's claims as well, Trump's worldview. Um, and the third thing I talk a lot about is political reconciliation, the fact that we need to build bridges and connections with each other. So I'm going to try to thread the needle between Chris and Keith here, and that Chris's position is, you know, don't bother, well, I don't want to characterize it, but he just said, look, we, we can't persuade those individuals. And Keith said, you know what, only good things happen when we're in relationships with people. So my threading the needle isn't, and I'm not just making it up from the, on the moment, this is actually how I see it, is that those relationships, when I talk about political reconciliation, I'm not talking about persuasion. I'm talking about relationship. If we start with persuasion, we're not going to get to relationship with people who disagree with us. Relationship has to start with, a, I'm not here to try to get you to change your mind. I'm here to simply understand you and to be in relationship with you. Then, and only then, down the road, when they authentically believe that you care about the person, are you going to get to any kind of attempt to persuasion. So if we're going for just persuasion purposes, I'm with Chris. Don't bother. If you're in a conversation and it's clearly back and forth and they're just trying to, that's not a conversation I'm going to waste any of my energy on. None. Zero. But I am going to waste or spend my energy on, <laughs> on relationships with family members, with colleagues, with other individuals who I think genuinely care about this country. And I'm not going to lead with, how the hell did you get that bumper sticker on your car? 
I'm going to lead with, that's a pretty cool truck you drive right there. Right? That's relationship. So that's part of what I think about political reconciliation. It's got to start with relationship. And we may not feel like we've got time for that as a people. And I get that. But there's no reason why we can't operate on multiple fronts. We're capable of that. Right? We don't have to defriend everybody. Uh, I can't remember most of the questions. So, and I was really sad. I was really sad that you took the last one, Chris, because that was the only one I could remember. Um, but, but I, I, I'm, I'm worried about. I'm more worried about Bannon than I am about uh, about Trump. Um, I think he's more dangerous than Trump is. Um, but, but I, there, there was a, a comment by just in terms of Trump being mentally ill. Um, there was a comment by what was it was. Um, Alan Francis, who wrote the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 4, um, and he wrote the um, definition of narcissistic personality disorder. And he wrote a, a, an article in the New York Times, or an editorial in the New York Times, and he said, stop calling Trump mentally ill. Um, he doesn't fit the criteria for a narcissistic personality disorder. He's a world-class narcissist, but he's not a narcissistic personality disorder, and to call him mentally ill is an insult to those people who are. I, I really like that one. I'll, I'll stop with that. Hey, so, uh, so, so I guess that's it, good people. Um, so thank you for coming out tonight. This is a fantastic talk. I want to thank uh, David, and I want to thank Keith as well. And, yeah, well, <laughs> and like I said, if you're progressive out here, you guys need to roll your sleeves up and put some work in, because that's what it's going to take to save our country. Thank you. That's it for this podcast of Speakers Forum featuring UW professors Christopher Sebastian Parker and David Domke and Wellspring Family Services Vice President Keith Myers. They spoke at Town Hall Seattle on February 27th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>